0: One, two, three.
1: Welcome to Three Song Stories, home of the song story, which we define as memories and stories brought forth when certain songs that have become connected to our lives enter our ears. Thanks for listening. I'm Mike Connery. Our guest this week is Bob Morris. Bob's a novelist who writes Caribbean-themed mysteries. He's also the author of several collections of nonfiction, including Gut Check, Short Road to Hell, The Man with the Fish on His Foot, All Over the Map, and The Whole Shebang. He's also president of Story Farm, which is a customs publishing company that creates books, magazines, and other publications for a wide variety of clients. And he's an adjunct professor at Rollins College, where he teaches courses in food writing and crime fiction. Bob's a fourth-generation Floridian who forsook the family farm, a fernery in Lake County, to pursue a career in journalism. After graduating from University of Florida, he worked at a number of newspapers, including the Florida Keys Free Press, the Fort Myers News Press, the Orlando Sentinel, and the New York Times Regional News paper group he's also been editor-in-chief of caribbean travel and life magazine and gulf shore life magazine he came our way via episode 179 guest melinda isley hey there bob how are you i'm doing real good thanks thanks for coming in we appreciate it um so you traveled here down from winter park florida uh do you listen to music while you're driving all the time what were
0: you listening to on the way here oh my gosh it was some brazilian music uh uh Antonio, Tom Jobin, any kind of bossa nova, kick music like that. Is
1: that what you often drive to, or is that just what you happen to play today?
0: That's what I wanted to listen to today. I mean, it was uh, just peppy, and I didn't have to focus on the words because I can't understand Portuguese. Understood. (laughs) So you
1: grew up in central Florida? In Leesburg, Florida. Leesburg. Uh-huh. I went to camp there as a kid. Were you Methodist? I Me- was Methodist youth camp. <laughs> yeah, that is it. I have some formative
0: memories from Leesburg. So, what's it like growing up there? Uh, it was pretty good back then. I mean, it was all orange groves and lakes and all all the good. It was a great place to grow up. You know, uh, like every place else in Florida, it has changed a lot. They've got a big development up there called the Villages now. Which oh, is, probably, is that where that is? Yeah, that's oh. where where the Villages is. We used to go out and have pasture parties there with kegs of beer under big oak trees and get in a whole lot of trouble. But uh, I miss that. I think there's still keg parties happening at the villages. No, that, that's a different kind of a keg party now, I think. You know? uh,
1: what's a fernery? A fernery um, It's where people grow fern. I was assuming as <laughs> such, but your, uh, your Wikipedia page said that you – you you gave up your family's dreams for a fernery or something like well, that. Well,
0: uh, my great grandparents, when they came to Florida back in the 1880s, they uh, got going in the citrus business. And freeze came along, and uh, they left that business and started. My great grandfather was the first real uh, grower of ornamental plants in Florida, and he started growing uh, fern like over 30 or 40 acres and this is fern that's used in like floral arrangements not like hanging baskets so and there's still a lot of fern grown in that area my brother's still in that business hmm.
1: so how would you characterize the musical background of your childhood there in leesburg
0: well I, I was forced to take piano lessons when i was five years old so or maybe six years old but uh I can read music, but not very well. I, I decided after about two years of that to start playing little league baseball instead. So, but I can still, you know, pick out a melody and and, and read music. Musical background,
1: like what was being played around you. You know, did your parents listen to music? Did yeah, my, older brothers and
0: sisters that you know impressed upon you music. I was the oldest one, but my my mom and dad. It was all big band music. My dad liked. Uh, the mills brothers we listened to that all the time and uh kind of cornball music but it was you know after in glenn miller i mean that's what he grew up with and then it kind of segued into um kind of show tunes and musicals that sort of thing
1: if i asked you what the mu- earliest musical memory you
0: can recall what would flash into your head Probably singing at Saint James Episcopal Church, <laughs> you know, probably hymns or something like that. Uh, uh, I can't think of any right off the top. Onward, Christian Soldiers, man, you know that was a rousing number, and so it's probably something from from church or my grandmother, who was mostly deaf, had and she was from England, would um, play the BBC. On her shortwave radio, and it would burst out tunes every now and then. But for the life of me, I can't remember one of them. It must have been turned up pretty loud. It was real loud. I tried <laughs> to tune it out. Actually,
1: so. did you play any other instruments besides the piano? No, that was it. Uh,
0: no, that's it totally. I wish I did, but that was it.
1: If you could choose to learn an instrument
0: instantly without trying right now, which would you choose? Actually, I, I would be better at guitar. I can play. I mean, I can play chords on guitar. You know, I can pick out GCA and all that stuff. So if I could be better, it would be to actually be able to pick a guitar
1: rather than just chords. What was the first kind of music that you identified with individually that didn't come from your folks or church or something like that?
0: Rock and roll. Yeah, You know, that was the – you know, when I was an adolescent, it was, uh, you know, the Beatles and the Stones. Well, actually, the first I identified with was – the Kingston Trio. Oh, yeah? Kingston Trio. This was you know, folk songs pre-Beatles. And that was, I guess, the first album I ever bought was the Kingston Trio live at the Hungry Eye in San Francisco. Hmm. And I must have been about 10 or 11 when I bought that album. And I, I liked it mostly because there was a uh, song on there called Zombie Jamboree. <laughs> and it had curse words in it. And I could sing along, you know, to all these kind of curse words. One of them was, I don't give a damn because I've done that already. And I could do it with impunity, you know, because it was great to be 10 years old and cussing during a song. (laughs) What did your folks think of rock and roll? They weren't big, you know, they they, they were right stuck with big band and, you know, Mills Brothers and Glenn Miller all the way. They kind of ignored rock and roll. They... They didn't hate it, but they didn't embrace it like I did. They didn't push back on you bringing it, bringing it home? Oh, no. No, not at all. No. No, never. I had my own room, my own music, my own, you know, hi-fi, that
1: kind of thing. So. You said you're oldest, so you have younger siblings? Mm-hmm. Yep. How many? Uh, I got two younger oh, two younger brothers and one younger sister.
0: I lost track there for a second. <laughs> did you influence them musically, would you say? I hope not. They've got good taste. So <laughs> I i don't know. I, I guess they probably had to listen to the stuff that uh, I was listening to because we did only have one record player for the kids to use. And by God, it was mine. You know, they didn't get to play anything on it. So that was – yeah, I guess I – we still all probably listen to the same kind of music. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, it is time for your first song.
1: Mm. It is the uh... – it's the South Pacific song.
0: Isn't that crazy?: Yeah, it is pretty crazy. How do you want to handle this? <laughs> you mean, do you want me to explain myself? Yeah,
1: do you want to explain <laughs> yourself or do you want to just leap into the show too? I think,
0: I think that song is uh, uh, there's nothing like a dame, is that? Yep. Yeah, yeah. Well, when I was growing up, I mean, we always sat around the dinner table, you know, we, we joined, you know, in, in the evenings, but particularly Sunday dinner, after church sit down at the dinner table with my deaf grandmother and the rest of our large family. And my dad would always put show tunes or movie soundtracks on at a very high volume so that my grandmother could hear them. And one of the first ones I remember listening to was the soundtrack from South Pacific, There's Nothing Like a Dame. And again, I liked it because there's some curse words in it. (laughs) (laughs) Had you seen the movie? Oh, yeah, I saw the one that came out in like 1960 or something. I think there was a remake, but I've not seen, Or and I think it was came up on Broadway again, but I only know the, the old one, the 1960. When was the last time you listened to this song? Probably when I was deciding on what to share here, and I said, oh, how awful is it? And uh, it, it doesn't really hold its age, but it's... Brings back memories like that.
1: So when we asked you for these three songs, then you harkened back to that time and this one popped in? That's it, exactly. Mm -hmm. Well, let's picture you sitting around the table with this just blasting (laughs) so Grandma could hear it. This is uh, There's Nothing Like a Dame from the original soundtrack to the film South Pacific, released
0: in 1958. That's great. Well, probably every woman I know would object to that song. <laughs> for maybe but you know what? I mean well my dad was in World War II and that is a movie I mean, a song about World War II. These uh you know, these uh horny soldiers in the South Pacific. That's that's what it was written about. So uh it was wonderful for that. And the lyrics are pretty smart, actually, as oh, Rodgers yeah, yeah. and Hammerstein. So I mean, you know, it was pretty smart. So um yeah, it's it is kind of dusty. Though. Was there singing going on at that table? I know, I would sing out all the cuss words, you know, that was the fun part <laughs> of it, you know. You know damn well. And and so uh I know I sang along with it and my grandmother was probably going, "What are they saying?" You know. <laughs> um musical theater
1: in general, is that part of your like routine or is, is that just a, no, flash, not a flashback?
0: Yeah, it's a flashback. Not at all as part I mean when we're in New York, I, love to, I like to go see musicals or theater or whatever like that, but it's not like I'm a Broadway groupie, you know, and there's, you know, there's some that I've liked a whole lot. And, uh, but no, I'm not a show tunes guy typically, but that was all about the memory of sitting around the family table at, at a meal and listening to music, which was, which was really important, to sit down and talk about it, to eat. And to listen at high volume. <laughs>
1: mm. um, so if I'm doing the math right, you said rock and roll is what first got you. You were in high school in like from the mid to the late 60s, right? So Correct. So you were kind of – you were a high school student student during that time. Right. Uh, how big was your high school? Kind of paint a picture of your high school years, how music fit in, what the vibe was like.
0: Well, I graduated from high school in 1969. So, I mean, it was a great musical time. I mean, the Beatles came out then. That was – You know that it was changing everything, and um, everybody I knew who was was really into that. I mean, cassette tapes, you know, were coming out then. Oh well, and eight tracks, you know, that was when they were first coming out. So you had access to it in your car, which was terrific. And I, um, everybody I knew, music was everything about them. I had some friends who were really good musicians too. And had bands. I was never that good. I'm pretty much tone deaf, I think. But but so there was a lot of that. It seemed like everybody had a band back then. Hmm. And they, they were decent. I had a friend who played drums in a band called the Beatle Stompers. <laughs> you know, so it was a takeoff on that. And uh there was good good music around. I mean my first concert was to go see the Who. Wow. In, Where? In Tampa. And I don't know when, I don't know what year that was. I might have been a freshman or a high school, um, a sophomore in high school. And I liked The Who, but they weren't the lead. They were opening for the Electric Prunes and the Blues Magoos. They were like the Those third. two didn't make it very they, far, apparently, because no, that <laughs> new me. Yeah. The the Who were j- just coming out. And uh, so they opened up this show in Tampa, a really memorable show, because – they came out on stage and they sang I Can See for Miles and Miles and Magic Bus. And then they got into My Generation, which is, you know, a throbbing song. And Roger Daltrey um, brought out the, Amer- uh, the Confederate flag and started waving it and the crowd, It was like, yay, yay. And then he brought out the um, American flag and then everybody went crazy. And then he brought out the Confederate flag again and burned it. And all these people charged the state. I mean, there was a brawl and equipment getting thrown around and they canceled the rest of the concert. You know, after they – that was the who though. That's what they did. They destroyed stuff. And and so that was yeah that was my first rock and roll concert probably in ninth or tenth grade. We got dressed up in coats and ties, you know, and and went to it. What did you think of what you were seeing? I you thought were, it was you awesome. You were young. <laughs> <laughs> I thought it was awesome. I thought these guys, oh, they're bad. Ash, you know, they're and I I like their music and their – you know, there was a fight on stage and they burnt the Confederate flag. I mean, they were really political about stuff. And and that's when. All that started really converging, I think, politics and music. Do you remember the first song you slow danced to? Oh, man. Maybe My Girl. You know, I was at the Temptations, I think. Maybe that. Maybe before that, there was was a song called I Want to Be Bobby's Girl. And girls, you know, always, they would say, would you dance with me to that? And I was like, oh, hell yeah. You know, so I— that was maybe in seventh or eighth grade. I don't know. But My Girl was a good slow dance song.
1: Hmm. You know? um, so from your bio, I understand that you wanted to be a marine biologist, but you couldn't handle the chemistry classes. So what did you do, and
0: how did it wind up journalism? I dropped out of college, <laughs> basically, because <laughs> I kept flunking uh, organic chemistry, and um I worked for a little bit, saved up some money, and and traveled around the world for a couple of years. I mean, I went to, you know, by myself, I went to Europe, through the East. you know, I was in Munich in 72 when the, mm. my, the Olympics happened, which was a really awful time. And from there, um, went down, you know, through Turkey, Jordan, Syria, all that stuff, and wound up. Uh, living in Israel for six months I, I um worked on a kibbutz in Israel near the jordanian Jordanian border, and I was gone for a long time, you know and uh had yeah you know you couldn't make phone calls from abroad over then so i I spent all my time writing these long letters home and very small tie on these airmail letters. I mean, I wrote dozens of these letters. I didn't have money to do anything but sit in bars and restaurants and write letters home. And when I finally got back to Florida, my mom goes, well, you're 23 years old. You've flunked out of college. You've been wandering aimlessly for two years. You know, what are you going to do with your life? I go, I got no idea. And she goes, well, you wrote really good letters home. Why don't you be a journalist? I said, okay. Okay and enrolled in journalism school at the University of Florida which you know and that's what I did it just proves you should always listen to your mom you know so what did they think of you i mean you're a fourth generation
1: floridian mm-hmm. were the other generations traveling the middle east or were they all pretty much in florida you know i mean what was it like for you at that time in the world to be like
0: see ya, i'm going to go wander I can't imagine, but that my parents were terrified by that, particularly since I was in Munich <laughs> during the, yeah. uh, the Olympics. And I can't imagine my own ch- my, my children are all pretty grown now, but they always, always encourage them to travel widely. I think you need to do that just to feel at one with the world, to not be intimidated by the world. I feel like, you know, my kids could go fly anywhere in the world and get off the plane and make their way. But at the time, you know, at the time you're young, you don't think about how dangerous it is to do that. You think you're bulletproof. So I, I'm i sure my parents were in a panic because the whole time I was home, I think I was only able to call home twice. They didn't even know I was coming home when I came home, you know. So, uh, yeah, th- the world was different then.
1: Were you intimidated by the travel at first and have to kind of grow into it or
0: were you just like took right to it? I wanted it, you know. I I wanted to just go roam the world by myself, you know. Not to say, you know, you'd meet people along along the way, and oh, I still. I mean, that kind of defined everything I did after it. Travel. I've been editor of travel magazines. I still, well, the last couple of years, not so much, but I still travel at the at the drop of a hat. I always tell people I inv- and invested in airplane tickets instead of real estate. So, but yeah, different kind of payoff. Yeah, it's a different but, kind of payoff. But
1: debatable <laughs> which is worth more yeah. in my opinion. Yeah. Um, so what was your first uh real job as a journalist?
0: Um well, I worked at the Independent Florida Alligator in Gainesville, which is uh the it's not the college newspaper. It got kicked off campus right when I was there, but uh, because it was running abortion ads, and the in the community uh, the college said, "No, you can't do that." so the paper said the student said, "Yeah, we can and became an independent uh newspaper. I did that and just fell in love with it. I hardly went to class I worked on the newspaper instead, which was a much better education and there, in the newsroom at the alligator, one day, right when I was getting ready to graduate, a guy walked in and he said, my name's Rio Hill. I own a weekly newspaper down in the Florida Keys called the Florida Keys Free Press. And I want to get a new staff and build a great newspaper. And he hired three or four of us right out of the Alligator Newsroom. And I was editor at the Florida Keys Free Press and in, in Marathon for a couple of months. He had all of <laughs> A couple of months. <laughs> well, what happened? Well, a couple of three months. Uh, he had all of his money. His money came from shrimp boats and lobster boats. And then he started a newspaper. Well, a tropical storm came through there, a hurricane, and it ruined his fleet of, fleet of boats. And when the hurricane had passed, I went to our newspaper office, and it was locked up. All the equipment was gone. He'd shut down the, the newspaper. But he gave me a month's severance pay, which was more money than I'd ever had in my life. And I went straight to Key West and... um had a few wasted <laughs> probably a wasted couple of weeks there and uh and then I said if I don't leave key west right now I'm never going to leave and then drove across country to LA just because, just cuz <laughs> just because I didn't have a job and when I was out in LA one of my professors from the University of Florida says hey the editor of the Fort Myers news press got in touch with me and they're looking for you know looking for a reporter Are you interested? So I drove back across country and, you know, came to the Fort Myers news press. Did you know anything about Fort Myers? I'd been here maybe once. I didn't know a thing in the world about it. I just remember, you know, driving into town and being knocked out by the palm trees on McGregor, you know, and just going, okay, this is great. They got a beach, you know, it's everything I want. Plus, it was a really good paper. I mean, it was great people working there that have gone on to do a lot of great things. And it was a great time for journalism, you know. It was, that would have been what year? It was 1975 okay. when, I, when I started there. And it was just, um, you know, it was at, right after Watergate, all that stuff, investigative journalism. There's just a great group of newspaper people and journalists here in Fort Myers then. It was it was terrific to work with them. What
1: was your beat like for that first job? What what kind of stories were you doing?
0: <laughs> I was, um, or I meant the the news press job. Yeah, yeah. I was. I started off um, as a nighttime police reporter. Okay. And I mean, and I got in trouble the first day. I I was my first day on the job, and I went to the police station late at night to get the look at the blotter before to get the last story in. And I saw it was during right before the bicentennial, so they had all these American flags, you know, downtown. And I saw that a couple of kids had gotten arrested for tearing down the American flag on what's First Street. And I further saw that one of them was the son of a county commissioner. <laughs> and I said, "Okay, that's news," and and went back to the news press and and wrote the story about county commissioner's son arrested for tearing down a. American flag on 1st Street, which is a story that people will read, you know. And the paper went to press. And they that night, they dropped the charges against the guy. Imagine that. And when I came into work the next day, there's the county commissioner sitting in the newsroom of the Fort Myers News Press. And there was a big to-do. And I was going, oh, man, I'm in trouble. I'm going to lose my job. And Joe Workman, who was my editor then, Um, You know, we talked to the county commissioner and all that stuff, and the guy goes, I want a retraction. I want a retraction. And Joe goes, Okay, we'll give you a retraction. No problem. And the county commissioner left, and I go, Gee, I'm sorry, Joe. He goes, Nah, it's great. You know, his son tore down those flags, and now when we run the retraction, people read it twice. (laughs) <laughs> so that was my first day on the job. Wow! <laughs> so, How long were you at the news press? I was there nine, almost ten years. Okay, yeah. so you did live in Fort Myers for a nice little stretch. Oh yeah, I lived out. I lived in my van on Fort Myers Beach for a while back when you could do that. Oh, I, just for a month or so, and then I met my wife here. So that you know that changed everything. Both of our children, children were born at Lee Memorial Hospital. Got any musical memories associated with your time in Fort Myers? Any concerts out at Lee Civic Center, possibly? Yeah. I mean, one in particular, um, a Jimmy Buffett concert. And it came at the time when my first book was coming out. It was a collection of columns. And... um, in order to promote it, I'd written a song with some friend of mine. Some friends of mine. And my, my book had pink flamingos, tacky pink flamingos, all over the, the cover, and I we wrote this song called the Pink Flamingo Song, and it was pretty good. I gotta say, it was pretty good, and we made a recording of it. And I knew the road. I'd gone to college with the road manager, for Jimmy Buffett, so I sent him a tape of the song. And Buffett was coming out to the Lee Civic Center. And um, I was sitting in the newsroom at the uh, news press one day, and the phone rang. I picked it up. And he goes, hey, Bob, it's Jimmy Buffett. I go, yeah. you know, And I recognized his voice. I'd heard him a bunch of times. And so we started talking. He goes, yeah, I got that tape you sent. He goes, I enjoyed that song and all that. And he says, so I got concerts coming up. In a couple of weeks, are you going to be there? I go, oh, yeah, I got tickets. I did have tickets to it. He goes, okay, great. You know, just, you know, I'm see ya. And I was figuring, okay, he's just calling up, wants me to write about it, get some publicity, and right. I didn't really do any of that. But the concert was on October 30th, which is also my anniversary. And one thing or another, I decided not to go to the concert. I'd heard Buffett a lot of times. And the next day... A friend called me up, and she goes, why weren't you at the concert last night? I go, you know, it's my anniversary. I took my wife out. And she goes, Buffett called you up on stage to sing your song with him. (laughs) I go, what? He goes, Jimmy Buffett called you up on stage to sing your song, and you were not there. I go, oh, God. And so I, you know. Who knows where that might have led? Probably nowhere. That could have been a whole new fork in the road. Yeah, yeah, you know. But anyway, that was my blown opportunity.
1: Wow. Okay. <laughs> well, before we get to your second song, one last tidbit about the news press. Jean Lebouf. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, that was me. You were the original Jean LeBeouf. Yeah. Am I saying it right? I don't know. You can say it <laughs> any way you want to. I made up the name. Jean Leboeuf.
1: Jean Lebouf. John the Beef? It's the uh the it's the, the it's the food writer
0: for the news press, which has been written by a number of different people over the years. You were the inaugural one. I came up with it. I came up with the name. They didn't have a restaurant review column. Well, Randy White had written one. Uh and, but it was more like roadside food and diners and stuff, and it was it was really good. Randy, you know, great writer, he did a good job at it. But he left the paper and they didn't have anything, and I said, well How about I become the restaurant critic? You don't have to pay me anything extra. I was really just looking for a way to take my wife out to eat dinner all the time. And, uh, yeah, so I became Jean LeBeuf. I chose the name because you couldn't tell if it was a man or or a woman. Mm -hmm. I dined anonymously. And um, it was a lot of work because the paper ran – the column ran in Friday's paper – that meant I had to turn it in on Thursday. That meant I had to go out and eat somewhere by Wednesday. And then it would then it got to be work. You know, I'd be coming home on Wednesday and go, Hey baby, we gotta go out to eat tonight and I gotta write something about it, you know. <laughs> there was no safety net there. So yeah, I did that. I did that for maybe a couple years and then somebody else, I think it was Heidi Ranilla. Started but there's probably been a dozen John LaBeouf mm-hmm. since then. I'm amazed that the
1: column is still It's still there. Around. And uh, the woman who does it now, they've made it public now. So the woman who does it now, they know it's not like hidden oh, anymore. Oh, it's not anonymous. uh Annabelle Tomatich is her name. Right, and right. And she comes on. She's done this show. Oh, good. And she comes on our Gulf Coast Life occasionally just to talk about restaurants and stuff. So, yeah, it's still going strong.
0: I can't. I'm astonished to know that, actually, because I kind of did it as a lark. And because I was hungry. <laughs>
1: and now all the listeners out there know the roots of the Jean Bouf. Okay. <laughs> uh, all right. Well, it's time for your second song. This is the,
0: uh, the Ohio Express song. <laughs> That's going to deserve some explaining. Okay. Uh, 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 let's go ahead and play it first, and then I'll explain it after all that, because it's... <laughs>
1: It is what it is. I can't wait to hear this. I know I know this song, but I haven't heard it in a long time. Okay, this is Yummy, Yummy, Yummy <laughs> by the Ohio Express from their 1968
0: self-titled album. Sweet thing. Yummy, yummy. That's even worse than I remember. <laughs> <laughs> I like the stereo mix thing yeah, going. There's, oh, yeah, there's a whole know, lot of separation yeah, in that. Yeah, that was, uh, that was pretty awful. <laughs> 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 I need to explain that, right? You definitely need to explain that. Well, it's, it's I mean, that's bubble gum music at its best, you know, but, okay, I'm a grandfather now, right? Got four grandkids, young. And I guess it was a couple years ago, again, it goes back to sitting around the dinner table, sitting around the table with your family, and um, which I think is really important, you know, to sit down and talk and and eat together and not watch television, but eat and talk. And, you know, we would always join hands and say a blessing or something like that. And, um, but my wife, a couple of years ago, she, I don't know, it was not even thought out. She just started singing yummy, yummy, yummy around the table and it caught on. So now whenever we sit down with the kids, we sing yummy, 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 I got love in my tummy and I feel like loving you. And then we go and you and you and you and you. And the kids love it. We love it. We've done it. (laughs) We did it. We've done it in restaurants where people just kind of stop and go, what the heck are they all about? You know, but um, it was it's an awful song that has a use. That's a
1: beautiful, beautiful story.
0: (laughs) Have you played it for your grandkids? Oh, yeah.
1: Okay. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. But
0: uh, so they get that and they dance and, you know, when they hear it and everything like that. It's really hard to listen to that whole song, let's admit it. But that first line, yummy, 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 I got love in my tummy and I feel like loving you, that works for a blessing. I mean, I might go to hell for saying that, but that works for a blessing <laughs> before your dinner, you know? Was song. your wife a particular fan of o- the Ohio Express or how did that even I like... <laughs> not. I hope uh, not. I can't, I can't imagine. You know, it was a totally random spur of the moment thing. Yummy, yummy, yummy! I got love in my tummy, and now it's become our our family dinner anthem, and um, I hope it gets passed on down to generations and generations. You know, hmm. probably not. But <laughs> were your your kids were
1: born in F- Lima, Moore? You mm-hmm. said, yeah. Were your grandkids born here in Florida? Oh yeah. We got some sixth
0: generationers. Uh, oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> they 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 were all um, they were all well. One, I'm trying to, one in California because that's where my son and daughter-in-law were living, and th- and then the rest in Orlando. Hmm. Yeah, but uh, all yeah, they're they're six generation Floridians now.
1: When your kids were coming up, were they ever bringing
0: home music
1: that you were uncomfortable with?
0: Not uncomfortable with. I mean, <clears throat> I can abide I You know. My own musical tastes have been deeply influenced by my my sons, and they've got good taste. and um at, at first, I didn't like some of the rap music but that they started they were listening to when they were younger. But I grew to like it, you know, not love it, but but liked it, you know, they were into the Beastie Boys, and I you know, I kind of dug them and um but more recently. You know, in you know last seven or eight years, they've really influenced what I listen to. I don't like to listen to a lot of old music. I'm not a classic rock guy. I don't like the nostalgia part of it all the time. I'd rather listen something to new or something that I haven't, haven't heard heard before. But we have a lot of the same interest in music. I mean, we're, all of us are big John Prine fi- fans. You know, we've gone to see Prine. We saw one of Prine's last concerts right before he died up in Orlando. So, I mean, um, you know, when I originally thought about music for this show, it was, there would be Angel from Montgomery or something in there by Prine because I think that he was, you know, a great songwriter, a great word, word guy. So my sons like him, but they like other music that they've really you know, influenced me with. Is there anything new that you've
1: come across, you know, fairly recently that you know you could mention? They're
0: big fans of a group called the Drive By Truckers. I'm familiar with the Drive By Truckers. Yeah, it's Dirty South music. You mm-hmm. know, it's rock and roll. It's it's it, but it's also it's also political. You know, they're um, and I agree with their politics. And so I've seen them a, a few times. And um, back during the pandemic. Uh, my older son was turning 40 years old, and uh, my younger son or called uh, a guitar player and songwriter for Drive-By Truckers named Mike Cooley, and he's great, and he lives in Alabama. And my younger son called him up on the phone, got his phone number through some connections that we had, and called him up on the phone and said, hey, would you drive down here and play for my my brother's 40th birthday, and they talked about money and everything like that. And, and Cooley goes, well, yeah, I've left the house for a whole hell of a lot less than that. <laughs> and he drove down to Winter Park. This was a year ago, March of 2021, and played a little concert in my son's backyard for about 40 people that was just awesome. You know I, I'm sure it was the highlight of both of my sons and my my uh, last couple of years musically. So I, I like I like their stuff a lot and you know other other people that are kind of tangential to that I think.
1: Hmm. So. Um, so when you were working as a journalist, you say you pu- published a few books of like collected stories and you know things you'd written novelist was novelist always on your?
0: arc? Yeah, always. I think anybody even, you know, I think early on when I was in college, I mean, I was a big writer, uh, reader, and, you know, liked literature, liked books of every kind, and always imagined myself writing books or being involved with books somehow. And, uh, you know, but it took a long time. I was, you know, working as a magazine editor and a journalist and raising kids, and I didn't publish my first novel until I was in my 50s. It was 2004 uh, before my first novel came out. But, uh, yeah, I always saw, saw myself doing that. It just took a little bit longer than I, I might have thought. How did you wind up writing stories that were Caribbean-based? Well, <laughs> uh, at, at the time, I was editor. I'd, I'd been editor at, uh, an editor at Islands Magazine. And then became editor of Caribbean Travel and Life magazine. No longer exists. Neither one of those magazines uh, still exists, but they were great travel magazines. So as editor, I was traveling through the—out of every month, I was probably traveling for two weeks to different islands in the Caribbean and then coming back for two weeks and putting out a magazine and doing it again. And I would go to all these islands, fascinating every island in the Caribbean is just like distinctly different people too many people have this cruise ship mentality where they think it's all all the same. You know they can't tell the difference between Bahamas, Jamaica, Barbados, anything like that, but they're all so different and I would go to these islands and come back with all this information about culture and people and all these ideas. And then have to condense it into a 2,000-word magazine article. So much got left out. So I, um, I was visiting the Bahamas one weekend, Harbor Island in the Bahamas. And I was just walking down the beach and got the idea uh, for a novel featuring this character who was a former Miami Dolphins football player who was just getting out of prison, as former football players sometimes do. And came up with an idea not for just the – I came up with the titles for like three books right away. (laughs) You know, Bahamarama, Jamaica Me Dead, Bermuda Schwartz. And then all I had to do was write 75,000 words (laughs) for each one, you know. But so that was, you know, in 2002 or something like that. But I actually came up with the idea for the character here in Fort Myers. I, I was working as uh, editor of Gulf Shore Life magazine at the time. I did that for a year or so. And I, was, I had an apartment in downtown Fort Myers. And they've uh, got down by the yacht basin there. They have a palm tree garden. they probably got two or three dozen different kinds of exotic palms growing there. And I got walking every morning around the marina and through that palm tree garden. And thought, okay, my character is going to be a boat guy who raises palm trees for a living. I mean, it kind of goes back to my own family having fernries and that kind of thing. But so that idea for the the series of novels kind of began here in Fort Myers off of that.
1: I've been to that Palm Garden. Yeah. I've, I live right near downtown. Oh, so. yeah. Did you live in the Bradford? I was picturing you living in the Bradford when you said you had an apartment downtown.
0: No, I'm not sure. – where was it? It was a small place. Well, that's an unfair question. Yeah, <laughs> I can't remember where Where It was a nice place, but I'm blanking on exactly what street it was on now. Did was, I say
1: Caribbean wrong when I said Caribbean, or are those interchangeable to some degree? I say Caribbean.
0: Okay. But, um, I mean – it. it Gets its name from the Carib Indians, who were ferocious Indians who came up out of uh, South Amer- uh, America. But it works either way, Caribbean or Caribbean. Doesn't matter. Okay, I,
1: I didn't know, and then I said it one way, and then you started saying it the other way. Yeah. Um,
0: okay. Before we get to your third song, tell us about Story Farm. Story Farm. That's uh, our publishing company, and I started it. Oh, I gosh, it's been about ten or eleven years now. Uh, It's why I haven't written any more novels because we've been busy publishing books for other people. We publish – we create beautiful coffee table books for uh, hotels and resorts and chefs and restaurants, artists and museums all over like North America. And um, it's so much fun uh, uh, to create create beautiful books. And, you know, we create – people – you think everything—the book business has gone to hell. Bookstores have closed. Everything's going digital, but people still like beautiful books. They, they you know, they have weight to them, and they want books about places that they love. So we—that's what we do. We, you know, create those kind of books. We did one for the oldest restaurant in Hollywood, Musso and Frank. We've done a book for Burn Steakhouse up in Tampa, for. You know, we did a book for the 100th anniversary of Hilton Hotels. And so they're really diverse. They're not all the same. It's fun working on each one of those projects to to put together something like that.
1: So you go out and do the work in the field yourself? Do you have people that do it? Do you have photographers? It seems like there must be some pretty good photography going
0: on. Yeah. A lot of, I mean, our books are really image-driven and uh, coffee table books, uh, when we first started off, uh, the, I wrote our first four or five cookbooks just so that I would know how to do it and uh, tell other people how to do it or help them. So now, um, you know, I look at all of them. But we ha- since our books are all over the country, um, we hire writers and photographers and people all over the place. Typically, where those books are based, I like to hire local people to do it. And it's one of my sons and me, and we have an art director and a production manager, and then some really good editors, and and then people all over the I'm always looking for new people. I just got back from St. Louis and Met a new photographer there who's working on a book that we're putting together.
1: It's like a perfect combination of things, I think, for you. It's like got some journalism to it. It's got some sort of travel writing to
0: it. It's got you know editorial you know work. Yeah, yeah. It's 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 so much fun, and I mean books are books are important, and uh, and beautiful books are important, and and I love doing it. I can't imagine doing anything else. Hmm. Okay, song number three. Hmm. This one, I I will uh, introduce what, this one a little bit. It's uh, by a woman named, it, it's actually, this song was written by Dolly Parton years and years ago, but I wasn't even aware of this, of Dolly's song until I heard this version of it by a woman named Kate Crutchfield, and she calls herself Waxahachie. And um, she's kind of in the orbit of drive-by truckers and all, she's from Alabama as well. And um, I I came up with this song pretty recently. I, I first heard it just about a year ago when the – in the middle of the pandemic, when vaccinations were just coming out, when we were getting a new president, when when we were looking toward the future more. And this song just seemed to fit it. So – Shall we listen to it? Let's listen to it.
1: All right. I Can See the Light of a Clear Blue Morning, like you said, originally by Dolly Parton. This is the version by Waxahachie. Waxahachie. Uh, from the album St. Cloud, released in 2020. It's Bob Morris's third song on today's episode of
0: Three Song Stories.
1: It's, gonna be okay. it's really
0: pretty. That's a beautiful song. I mean, Dolly wrote it. I'm embarrassed that I didn't even hear it, you know, for probably 25 years after she wrote it. But Kate Crutchfield really nails it. And it was the perfect time to, you know, to hear that song. I used to, I mean, I remember just driving around in my car listening to it all the time, you know, a year or two years ago. So, How'd you come across it? Um, gosh, I just really liked Waxahachie. And... And The it, name or the, well, the that's, musical act? That's well, what, that's what her <laughs> you know, band name is. I, I like Kate Crutchfield and I was just listening to that album and that's one of many that stuck with me off of that. But I just thought it was appropriate for the time that, that, that we were living in. It was, it was hopeful. I mean it could be – it's relevant today too with everything that's going on. I think songs like that are always relevant. You know, they're, I'm basically an optimistic person and that's a you know a song of of optimism of great optimism there you ever go back then and listen to the dolly version i have yeah after i see when i first heard it i go i was going man that's awesome that she wrote that song that's so beautiful and then i looked into it and saw that she didn't actually read it but it's that that version's pretty faithful to the dolly okay. version of it it's pretty faithful to it hmm um okay,
1: we're kind of heading toward the end here. Oh. So we're going to speed round you. Oh, karaoke.
0: Never. Never. <laughs> Is that a principle in the Bob Morris playbook? Well, I think I I might have done it once or twice, but I was awful about awful at it. And I remember being on a cruise ship once with my kids, my sons. And they took over the karaoke machine. I can't remember what they were singing, but the whole lounge cleared out. You know, they got rid of everybody there. They were awful. And I'm just not a big fan of karaoke, except when Bill Murray sang it in – uh, Elvis Costello's song "What's So Funny About Peace, Love, and Understanding," and that movie with Scarlett Johansson. That I'm yeah the uh, the one where he goes to Japan. Uh, yeah, Bill Murray sang karaoke. In Lost that. in translation. Lost, Lost in, in translation. translation.
1: That was... that music movie's got a great soundtrack of mm-hmm. instrumental tunes, mm-hmm. which you will hear all over public radio if you listen discerningly. Oh. Like
0: sometimes like in the middle of like marketplace, you're like, oh,
1: that's from Lost in Translation.
0: <laughs> well, I'm a big fan of Elvis Costello too. So I mean, and, and that's you know, that's up there in my top top songs. And when Bill Murray did it, it was great. So
1: Um If you were a championship wrestler, what song would you enter on?
0: Oh good gosh, what would that oh huh, man. I didn't I didn't I didn't think of that one. Oh, uh, I'll pass. I'll come back on that one for a second. If you were a cocktail or drink of some kind,
1: which was which was a distilled you, what would it be?
0: Definitely be gin. Lots. Oh, it would be a three to one gin martini. Beefeater's gin, three ounces, and I do like vermouth in uh, my martini. So an ounce of Dolan uh, vermouth and with a lemon twist. And some microplaned planed uh, lemon peel in it, up, not on the rocks. Name it. Huh? Name it. Uh, name it? Uh, a, a, a lemon peel martini that I could swim in. Okay. <laughs> um, Let me if, tell you, that's like the fastest anybody has ever answered this question. I think question you just tell us so what he made last detail. night. <laughs> yeah,
1: right. <laughs> uh, okay. Um, if you had to guess, what song would you
0: say is the song you've listened to the most times? For God, it could well be, you know, uh what's so funny about peace, love, and understanding? You know, that that's I've a lot of Elvis Costello I've played on loops. John Prine's Angel from Montgomery. I already mentioned that one. That's a favorite. Anything, Prine. Something like that. But those... And then, you know, I when I'm working at home during the day, I, I play a lot of world music, a lot of Brazilian, a lot of African. And there's songs that keep coming up that I love. I couldn't pronounce the names to them, but they're great. And so a lot of uh, Oliver, Tuku, Makudzu... Molly molly music, you know, I love that kind of stuff.
1: Are you familiar with the website? And I don't know the name. I'll have to look it up and give it to you if you're not familiar with it. But it's got a map of the globe and it's got like 10,000 radio stations and you can just zoom in like Google Maps and just click it and it'll just start playing like the actual
0: stream of that radio station. No, all but over need, the whole world. I need to need to know that one. Okay, I'll,
1: I'll pass it along because it's fascinating. Because sometimes you like click on some place in Africa, yeah, and they're playing Elvis Costello. Oh, and sometimes you pl- pick on some place in Europe, and they're playing African music.
0: Oh, I, <laughs> I I I love. There's so much music out there, but I I really like listening to music where I don't have to get involved with. I like a lot of jazz, you know, and. I don't have to get involved with the lyrics, and I can keep working. So.
1: Is it called Radio Garden? I think it is. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Radio
0: Garden. Oh, I'll seek
1: it out. Um, Do you have a nickname that's stuck over the course of your life that
0: you'd be willing to share? My grandkids, and they don't call me Grandpa or anything. like. It's just Bobby. Bobby. So I guess I've always just been – my dad was known as Bobby. He was Robert James Morris. I'm Robert James Morris Jr. My son is Robert James Morris the III. was already too many Bobs in the family, so he became Bo. My grandson is Robert James Morris IV, and we call him Boz. So it's all been variations on that. But I guess Bobby, I'll go to my grave being called Bobby. I'll be in a crowd and somebody will go, hey, Bobby, and I know it's somebody from Leesburg that I grew up with. <laughs> um, Song you wish you could hear again
1: for the first time. You mean having never heard mm-hmm. it before? You can like erase your
0: understanding of it and be exposed to it fresh. Gosh. Um I think you know, I forgot to mention Bob Marley here. But I, I've always liked that song, Three Little Birds. And again, that's another optimistic song. And I've I, I remember the first time hearing that one. And I was down the, in probably in the Caribbean, I was probably in Jamaica. At the time when i was a kid like 15 or 16 early on and you know i love that song and and my one of my grandsons has learned the lyrics to it and now i mean he's only four years old and he can sing that sing that song but um it, it was kind of fresh and new and and reggae which i love album
1: you wish you could hear for the first time
0: Kingston Trio live at the Hungry Eye. That was the first album I ever bought, and I don't have it anymore. And uh, but that's what you know. I really, I, I can remember most of the songs on it. I think, but I would, I would love to hear that fresh again.
1: If you could broadcast a song into every human being's brain simultaneously, which would it be? Oh gosh. Oh
0: man, I don't know. It would not be yummy, yummy, yummy. I, 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 I tell you that it would. It would that would not, get some people freaking out. Yeah, it would. It would. It would. You know, I love "No Woman, No Cry," uh, and you know the the Marley song like that. But my wife and I were listening to it on the way down, both kind of, you know, sing it and everything. I love that song. You have a favorite band,
1: or band you've spent the most time with, maybe.
0: Uh well, if prime counts as a band, yeah. you know,, yeah. uh, I've probably been to more concerts, you know by him than anyone else. Prime, Petty, you know, Wilco, I love Wilco, Jeff Tweedy seen seen them a couple of times. so those rank right up there.
1: Uh, act do you hope you get to see someday?
0: Uh, oh, I want to see Wilco again. Other, other than that, oh, man, there's so many of them. Nothing is coming. I, I would like to—Wilco does a, a festival in New York every other year, and uh, which lasts for four or five days. And it's not like giant or anything like that. And I'd, I'd like to go to that. I like Jeff Tweedy.
1: What would your 14-year-old self think of who you
0: are today? Cool guy. <laughs> no, no, I doubt that. He would kind of go, what? Uh, you know, what? I turned out like that. I, feel, I still feel like my 14-year-old self, actually, though, so I think we would get along. It's time for you to recommend your three people. Oh, okay. I've been thinking pretty long and hard about this, like at least for the last five minutes. Um, a friend of mine, Rick Plummer. Uh-huh. Uh huh. In Fort Myers, Rick or Madeline Plummer, whichever one would... Rick and or and or they could both do it. And We've I done it
1: two first before. Yeah, they they're can... they're
0: both well known in the community. Rick's a, a dentist and an artist. Uh, Madeline was uh, with Lee County Library for years and years. Fort Myers Library, Lee County Library. You know, lovely people, love music. I kind of have an idea what they might be picking. Um, then uh, Fabrizio uh, Ali. Who lives down in Naples. He's a restaurateur. He's got three or four restaurants, Sea Salt, Barbatella, Durona, all down in Naples. We we published a book for him, and he's just a delightful, sweet guy. He was born in Venice, Italy. He's uh, very Italian, and I think he would mix it up here, mix it up here pretty well. Okay. And then the third person I just kind of thought of today, and I'm gonna be seeing her tomorrow. So I'll spring this on her. Her name is Gail Markham. And again, she's, uh, she's uh, an accountant, accountant here for, for years. I've known Gail for, this will embarrass us both, but probably close to 50 years. And, and uh, I have got no idea what her ma- musical tastes are, but I think she would knock it out of the park. Okay. We'll put
1: this into their hands and their ears, and then we will try to get them in here. Um, That's
0: it. You got any final thoughts to leave us with? I'm still going to wrestle with that wrestling song. I've got, uh, you know, uh, we are the champions. Uh, It'd probably be, hey, you get off of my cloud. It kind of, something like that, you know, it'd be the Stones. Sounds good. Thank you so much, Bob. Okay.
1: We make three song stories in the studios of WGCU Public Radio on the campus of Florida Gulf Coast University in Fort Myers, Florida. Richard Chinqui is co-creator and producer. Tara Callaghan is our online content producer and she hosts. Chris is executive producer and our theme song was created by Dave, Dave, Dave Cowan and Stick Martin up at Monkey House Studio in St. Pete. For this week's Parting Tune, we're jumping back one year to episode 160 with Rose Edie Govan. Rose is music director at French. Baptist Church in Fort Myers and had a 35-year career as a public school music teacher. She told the story about when she was a kid around 10 years old, her oldest sister would play records when she was visiting with her. This was during the time of Jim Crow in a segregated Fort Myers. Her first song was one she listened to with her back then called Our Day Will Come by Ruby and the Romantics. Rose said hearing it for the first time transformed her. You know, growing up in that era and uh, seeing a lot of things and hearing about a lot of things you start as a child to wonder about you know how's it going to be is it going to be this way all the time or how's it going to be for me and when I heard that song I'm thinking yeah things going to get better I know it's going to be okay you know And it was something about the, it was like the sway of the music, uh, the rhythm, you know. And uh, with me loving music anyway, it just kind of like transformed me and put me into a uh, different dimension. Keep listening. Next time on Three Song Stories... You're an RA in the dorms? Unfortunately, Uh, I should say yes.